Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, and we got a show for you today. And I, I want to get running out of the gate before we do phone calls or anything else. I got a special guest for you. Uh, and uh, most of you know him, and I would venture to say probably 90% of you at one point cast a vote for him. Uh, I'm talking about the Secretary of Agriculture and our former governor, Sonny Perdue. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, hometown boy. How are you today? I am doing great. It is a, a good day in middle Georgia, as they always are. Indeed, indeed. Well, now, it's a beautiful day, actually, in Washington, D.C., although we don't get to see much of it outside right now. Okay, now, I, I, I do have to ask you a question about that real quick. So, have has it, like, gotten all of a sudden cold and snowy up there? All, all my friends up the eastern seaboard are complaining that suddenly it's it's gone from beautiful weather to cold, and my wife, meanwhile, is able to ride her motorcycle finally. Well, we were in the Rose Garden yesterday afternoon for the press conference, and it got rather chilly there almost at dusk. But it's a beautiful day. It's a, it's what you kind of typical think of a mid-April day in D.C. But the weather's fine, but uh, we have other challenges, obviously. Yeah, that is the truth. Let's talk about those. There are all sorts of growing concerns. In fact, I was just reading an email from a listener from Warner Robins, as a matter of fact, uh, who is deeply concerned about the story of Smithfield Farms getting COVID-19 and worried about the food supply in the country. And I I told him to to stick around and listen because I knew you would be coming up and and would have some answers. Well, certainly. And I want to reassure people. Obviously, uh, uh, Eric, as you know, there's been a uh, sort of a dislocation of supply and demand. Uh, We had really two parallel systems of uh, our supply chain. One went to restaurants, and about half of our food consumption now comes from out of the home. And then we have the other going into the retailers and grocery stores. Well, when restaurants and institutional settings, schools, colleges, and others shut down, uh, that is a severe relocation. And many of these processors... uh, uh, were geared for institutional size settings. The labeling's different. The size of the packaging is different, and many of their processing plants for efficiencies don't can't convert very quickly. So that's created some dislocation that we're trying to resolve with USDA. But I want to reassure your listeners and this lady who called that the food supply is going to be adequate. It's going to be safe. We do have some issues over some uh, temporary shutdowns at some of our processing plants. So they can take care of their employees, they can clean out and uh, make sure everyone, their their workers are safe, but also uh, make sure the food is processed as well. Now, I went to Publix yesterday, as a matter of fact, and I noticed that really the, the meat supply seems fine. I could get pretty much any sort of meat I could have gotten two months ago. And it, there seems to be some problems maybe with eggs and dairy, and, and obviously there's there's the toilet paper problem. Uh, but things do seem to, even if it may not be on the shelves yet, and, and I wonder how much of that is people, because as you said, so much of this is now going into the home, people are actually home more, so they're buying more as opposed to people hoarding the food. That's exactly right. The demand has shifted from out of home to home for uh, for eating there, and that uh, that creates some temporary bare shelves in some spots, which will which quickly replenish. We were, the vice president and I were in the uh, Walmart Grocery Distribution Center in uh, Gordonsville, Virginia, a week, Friday was a week ago, and uh, they're moving things in and out well. Uh, supply chain is very sophisticated in the United States. It's very integrated. In fact, it's, it's so synchronized. That's been part of the problem in the dislocation of demand uh, from the restaurants and institutional settings. That's been one of the challenges of helping us get 
back where people can reprocess to serve the consumer market in our retail establishments. I, I interviewed Governor Kemp yesterday about some of the health care challenges and, and things, and he noted uh, the number of regulations that have to be waived that were in place, and suddenly they're not that necessary. And, and you've now mentioned the the supply chain issues and the way some things are packaged. And I, I read a report; I think it was in the Wall Street Journal uh, this weekend that, for example, with the the paper shortages and it's particularly toilet paper, that because of the way UPC symbols are and the way things are labeled and and the way regulation applies, that it is difficult to roll that over. So, is the USDA and, and the government kind of making a note of some of these things to wonder after this is over, are some of these things really necessary? Eric, you might imagine, I've been asking those things since I've been in D.C. for three and a half years uh, about the necessity of some of these. In fact, here's the example I use. Uh, Congress will pass a a law or a statute, and then the uh, executive branch writes regulations in order to implement that. Many times we take the intent of Congress and we bubble wrap it in two or three uh, sections of, of safety and in the in the bureaucracy you can imagine there's a risk averseness of not wanting to violate anything and we get ourselves all handcuffed uh, about regulations so we've been in the business over for over three years now of what i call unwrapping the bubble wrap in many type of regulations this just brings attention to some of the things that uh might have been needed at one time but are no longer necessary and it's not like the business uh the speed of business. That's what we're trying to operate on. But the good news is USDA has responded very, very promptly uh, to many of these waiver requests, both in the school lunch programs and the uh, SNAP program, but also in the food chain program as well. So many of these things that I think you can, uh, to your point, look at it afterwards and said, did we really need that at all? You came under some heat uh, for one of the reforms you did of, of moving a number of people out of Washington closer to the Mississippi River Valley, frankly, closer to the farmers that they serve. And, and in hindsight, it, it almost looks like uh, with all the telecommuting people are doing, having those people not in Washington, D.C. has actually probably helped you guys as opposed to the, the hunker down in Washington trying to get in or, or even telecommuting inside D.C. Well, Eric, you remember the eight years when I served as governor from 2003 to 2011 weren't the best economic years we had. We had uh, double-digit downturns in revenue on two or three or several occasions, and we had to learn how to save money and do keep doing the job. When I realized we looked at a, uh, a, a real relocation type of scenario that I was faced with when I was governor, with companies would come in and uh, solicit to us for all that. When we realized we could save over $300 million by moving in 15 years, by moving two small agencies out of D.C., it was a no-brainer for me. And you're right. These were mostly administrative people who can certainly do a job, but they're better off that we can actually hire people better out there that are uh, that can't afford, frankly, with young families, school debt, these young Ph.D. ag economists who can't afford to live in Washington, D.C., well, you know, you mentioned the economic downturn uh, that Georgia had faced, and I remember when, when you did come in. Uh, I, I remember the number of people who didn't expect you to come in, and, and suddenly here, here you are, the governor of the state of Georgia, and you're dealing with some economic problems. And now suddenly you're in D.C. and, and you've got the the same thing, but on a on a macro scale, much larger. 
than ever. It, one, it, it just seems like you're the right person for the job, given your background there. But two, uh, you've also got a background uh, in, in ag science and in uh, veterinary medicine and all. How are you seeing the larger economic issues within the ag community uh, shaping up because of the economic downturn? Well, there's some real pain, the legitimate type of pain out in the ag community, the supply chain all the way from those who provide inputs to farmers and ranchers to uh, those who serve it to our consumers and restaurants and others. So uh, obviously the president is struggling right now. He's trying to thread the needle over getting this economy back. We we don't want to have uh, save ourselves from a virus and die of hunger, and that's kind of the uh, hyperbole of what uh, what we face and the challenges here of moving this economy back, opening up. And uh, I'm glad that he's thinking of it. I know he'll be speaking to the governors today, but he'll get criticism about that like he does about everything else. But I think uh, it appears to me, I talked to Dr. Burks yesterday personally, and it does appear that uh, this virus is peaking in many parts of the country, not everywhere, but uh, they're not. it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all reopening either. So I'm glad to see him moving in that direction. We need to get back. We need to get our food demand back uh, out of the home and where people can uh, restore their lives and get back to work. What is your position now as we start getting people back to work on this growing argument about national security, our dependence on other countries, particularly China, as it relates to the agriculture sector and the competition we see abroad? Is is there in your mind really a national security issue about uh, being too broadly dependent globally on American food sources? Well, the good news is uh, America is very independent regarding food sources, and thankfully so. You you know what happened when we've been dependent upon foreign petroleum there. But that's the great news is that America, uh, based upon its farmers, its ranchers, its producers, and the hardworking people in the food supply chain, uh, has adequate and safe food supply. Uh, what you may remember, having grown up, we now get fruits and vegetables year-round, counter-cyclical to our growing season, and that's coming in imports. But we have adequate food in our country solely contained. In fact, we have so much that we have to depend on exports for profitability in the ag sector. So I think that's a great way to be. I think uh, if we were as independent in many ways as we are in our food supply, uh, we would be a, a safer, more secure nation, in my opinion. Last question for you, Secretary Purdue. There are reports out about, and I think I've seen them, you've probably seen them, farmers have to either dump milk or, or uh, produce. And now I read an article about the uh, beef farmers are, are being hit on hard times because the middlemen are, are being able to get such low prices now. They're thinking of slaughtering cattle just to be able to boost uh, demand and limit supply. What's the, the, the position within the USDA about uh, these sorts of stories that are circulating? Well, that's what we were talking about earlier, trying to realign this uh, parallel processing system in order to get all that straightened out. It takes a little while to do that. It takes logistical challenges, but uh, the the pork industry is particularly vulnerable. While we've got Georgia producers, Florida producers having to leave uh, specialty crops, produce, and vegetables in the fields and plow them under because of lack of demand, we've also got the dairy dumping, as you mentioned, because the processes that those dairymen were selling to uh, are processing for the institutional market. We're doing our best to get those relocated into a market where we can have uh, all the milk in the grocery stores any consumer wants to purchase. But uh, 
a challenge in the pork industry. It is so sophisticated. It's so just in time. When you uh, breed a sow and the pigs are born, the pigs are weaned, they're fed, they've got to go somewhere. They don't have a facility to back up those fed hogs. They need to be processed onto the consumer. So if you think about it, Eric, it's almost like a an accident on the interstate. Everything's flowing along great at 65 or 70 miles an hour until there's an accident. And then there may be a multi-car pileup and it's certainly a traffic uh, stoppage for miles after that, that point, depending on the severity. So that's a little bit of what we're seeing in the food supply chain now. Mr. Secretary, I, I got to tell you before we get off here, you're one of my favorite people to talk to about this stuff because I ask a question and you actually give me an answer, and I know you're going to give me an answer and not just filibuster because you don't have one. And I, I got to tell you as an interviewer, I, I appreciate your willingness to actually give straight answers on this stuff. Well, I believe the American public divert, deserves transparency and honesty many times when they don't like to hear the answer. And, Eric, that's what we try to do. Well, thank you very much for taking time out of your morning for this. I really do appreciate it. My best to your family as well. Y'all have a good day. Keep riding those bikes. Absolutely. Governor and Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, uh, the first Republican governor of the state of Georgia after Reconstruction, now President Trump's Secretary of Agriculture, and a hometown boy from middle Georgia. Uh, great guy. You know, occasionally, occasionally, you'll run into him down in the Warner Robins area. And now up there trying to make sure he's got all the supply lines open. One thing before I go to commercial break, I I, I want to reiterate this. It is one of the, the, the things I'm glad they're doing, and, and I'm, I'm particularly glad that he is doing this and Governor Kemp is doing this, is being more and more mindful of the amount of regulation that is in place that maybe is no longer necessary. Things that were there for so long, you know, we, we get into these habits of we do things because we've always done them. And maybe there were things that were put in place 30, 40, 50 years ago that are still in the regulatory framework that in the 21st century aren't necessary. And it's great to hear they are kind of keeping track of it. And he's been doing that all along. All along, In fact, when he was governor in Georgia, for those of you not listening, not from Georgia who are listening right now, one of the things he did when he came in is, is he did in Georgia go back and look and say, we, we've had essentially Democrats in office forever. Uh, and there's a certain way of thinking when you're a Democrat as opposed to a Republican. Let's go through it through and see if we can find some ways to, to make the system more efficient with fresh eyes. And, and he did. And so it's great to be able to see that now at the national level that he's there looking at all these regulations. Do we really need these things? And again, as he mentioned, the, the really one of the sticking points right now in Washington, D.C. and in, in the supply chain is we've bifurcated between consumer and commercial in the food chain. And it's not easy because of the separate regulations to roll one into the other. And they're having to figure out ways to do that. And that's why we're seeing the hiccups in the grocery stores with toilet paper and paper towels and even some of the food stuff. And with the, the Smithfield Farm situation, we may see some of that with the pork situation as well. We got phone calls. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. And the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Joe and Ella J, it is good to hear your voice. How are you, my friend? Eric, Eric, you have an incredible show. I've more and more people are calling me and saying, Joe, you need to get on Eric's show. But anyway, I want to tell you, Steve Moore is a good friend of mine. He's on Fox Business News every day, and he called me and said, Joe, tell everybody we got to get this economy open. But that's not why I call, Eric. I'm, I'm starting a leadership class, 
at Pooh's Barbecue to young people. I got some outstanding young leaders. Three of them, two of them want to be president of the United States, and one wants to be a senator. And I want to invite you to speak to my leadership uh, class at Pooh's Barbecue. Sometime I'm going to be doing it the rest of my life, which I hope will be a lot many years. But I want you to come speak to my leadership class because I, I will absolutely you be up there as, as long as I get some and, of that good barbecue. Yes, you'll get you'll definitely. I I will buy you all the barbecue you can eat if you'll come up there and speak. Okay, <laughs> Joe, I'll make deal? it happen. Hey, hey, but I I, I want to keep you here for just a minute because I want to ask you this question because because sure. you know I I I agree with the governor. We we've needed to to keep everybody home so that we don't overwhelm the hospitals. But I'm starting yes, to see sir. all this yes. data that you know people are doing it on their own. Uh, they don't need the government, and I'm glad that our governor has had a light hand compared to some of these idiots around the country. But I, I'm starting to think, you know, May 1 sounds like a good day. We should be able to tell people you're going to be able to start venturing out if you feel comfortable. And I, I'm wondering what, what up in LJ you guys are seeing uh, in terms of the local economic impact. Well, that we, we, we agree with that 100%. Everybody I'm talking to, Eric has a, you know, I do a lot of talk shows and every, everybody I'm talking to say, Joe, we got to open up. We got to get back to work. People in LJ are fired up. They're hardworking people. God-fearing, hard-working people, they want to go back and, I mean, no, they're not used to staying at home. They want to get out and right. get to work and see people. And uh, But one good thing, Eric, people listen to talk radio more. People are hearing <laughs> you more because they're at home and they, they at work they can't listen to Eric, but when they're home they can. So in one sense it's really good for you because a lot of people are telling me, hey, Joe, I hear so Eric said such and such. And so so it's, it's good for you. But, no, we need to get back to work. May 1st. That's what Steve Moore said, and I agree with Steve. Let's get this country back to work, Eric, May the 1st, and keep up the great job you're doing. Your talk your talk show is fantastic, and I consider it a great honor to be on your show, and I'm looking forward well, to having you speak to my leadership class. I'm looking forward to come out there, Joe. Thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you very much. Uh, Joe up at LJ. Man, i got to go up there for, for the apple picking season, too. Uh, just a just a beautiful area up in LJ. Uh, Bob and Marietta, going to go to you next. Welcome. Hi, um, I was just, and I'm sure you're going to be talking about this on your show, but Trump's comments yesterday about using Article 2, Section 3 for recess appointments. I know there is a difference between what Obama did because he didn't obviously go this route and the Supreme Court slapped him down. But I didn't know if um, this is actually, even though it's never been used before, something that Trump could actually use and be constitutional um, because, and also, if I can make an observation, I've always noticed, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Trump always seems to say many um, outlandish, um, bombastic types of uh, things, comments, and threatens to do this, that, and the other thing, and everybody accuses him of being a king, but then he doesn't actually do them versus <laughs> uh, Obama. You know, I, uh, Bob, so I, I was going to say that, and, and that's a good point. This uh, The president makes these, like, for example, the other day, he said that, you know, the president of the United States, he's in charge, he's in total control, and he gets to open up the country, and he doesn't. And, of course, the, the left went went wild over it, and, and he, he's not actually going to do it. He's not actually going to believe it. And then uh, yesterday, for those of you who don't know, the president essentially said there's a provision in the Constitution that's never actually been deployed before, that when the House and the Senate cannot agree on an adjournment, the president can force them to adjourn. When the House and the Senate cannot agree on adjournment, the president can force them to adjourn. Uh, but the problem is, constitutionally, the House and the Senate, they're, they're, they're not having a problem reaching an agreement on adjournment. Uh, both houses have agreed 
to do short-term recesses and pro forma sessions to avoid um, to avoid adjournment and to avoid a 10-day recess because neither the Republicans nor the Democrats want to set the precedent of going into recess for more than 10 days so that the president can do recess appointments. Uh, it's a fairly settled constitutional principle now that you got to be in recess for more than 10 days for the president to do these appointments, and neither side wants to be in recess for more than 10 days now. So the president can't do it because it's not a matter of disagreement between the houses and Congress. We'll be back with more on this. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I'm, I'm laughing because Charlie and I are texting during the break. The, the phone's closed and his his daughter turned off the phones. <laughs> They're back open. You could call in, but I was I was texting and, and now I'll just follow up on the on the point here and he can hear it over the wire. Um so uh, my, my kid and I were discussing yesterday what would happen if I got sick. Who would do the show? Normally it would be Chris Burns. He's quarantined in his house. Uh, Alan Sanders is quarantined in his house. So what we do, and my teenager said, I'll do it. I was like, really? It'd be three hours of naming and shaming the people who annoy her. <laughs> and she totally, she'd actually, she, one day she will be a, a, a great talk radio personality <laughs> And she will not be afraid to name and shame the people who, who annoy her. <laughs> they live in fear. I, I, I have had to admonish my children at one point uh, that they should they should never tell people that I will I will <laughs> name them on radio if they annoy my kids. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, uh, th there there is a useful lesson uh, out of Maryland today. Uh, or no, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it is Maryland. Uh, Tawny Town, Maryland. Now, it's it looks like Taney, but we know it's named after Roger Tawny, the Supreme Court um, Chief Justice from back during this war. So Tawny Town, Maryland police are reminding residents to wear pants while checking their mailbox. In a Facebook post, police said, quote, please remember to put pants on before leaving the house to check your mailbox. You know who you are. This is your final warning. <laughs> Y'all, I, I don't know who it is, but I'm sympathetic. Uh, I'm actually, I'm wearing shorts this morning. Normally I actually get up, I, I put on my pants. I, I, I take a shower. I brush my teeth. I, I do my hair. I put on my pants. I come to work. And this morning I'm like, I see no reason to wear pants. I'm going to wear shorts today. It's hot in my studio. <laughs> and my, my pants smelled like cigars. Cause I, I, I socially distance uh, with Philip who works for me on the front porch. Like, speaking of speaking of naming and shaming people, y'all. I work with a millennial who has a fantastic work that work ethic. He is one of the most responsible people at his age. Uh, he has more gray hair than me and he's half my age. Uh, but nonetheless, we're sitting on the front porch last night. We both watched Westworld on HBO. Yeah. Oh, you're absolutely right. I'm talking about this. I'm still horrified by this. We're on the front porch. We're having a conversation. I, Westworld season three has has started up. I, I I don't recommend the show to any of you. You will question my sanctification and salvation if you watch it. Don't don't watch it. But I've watched it, and Anthony Hopkins is in it, and I'm a huge fan of Anthony Hopkins. 
And we're sitting on the front porch. We're having a glass of bourbon, smoking a cigar, keeping the virus away. It's all medicinal. That's why. And I say, so is Anthony Hopkins in season three? Because I hadn't started watching season three yet. And he looks at me. And he says, who's that? (gasps) And then he says, is that the black guy? Oh, Father God, spare me this. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't even know what to say to that. How do you not know who he is? But he didn't. He's never even seen Silence of the Lambs. I'm going to have to have movie night with him and make him watch Silence of the Lambs. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. Don't watch it with kids if you've never seen it. But but still, I, I just, I, I he's never seen Silence of the Lambs. He didn't know who Anthony Hopkins is. Thor's dad. Thor's dad and Thor. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. Had to show him a picture. It's okay. It, it, it's it's okay. I'm 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 gonna move on now from that. I, I actually have something I wait, wait, hang on a second. Hang on. Um yes, yes, I, I agree. I, I have a I, I have a federal judge who is texting me. And, and I agree, he is outraged at, at the entire idea. Oh, no, that's terrible. Law clerks don't know Gilligan or Cool Hand. Oh, man. And, and see, this is it. I, I texted a I texted a gif from the movie Clueless, Alicia Silverstone. He didn't even know who that was. I, I'm we are, we are a culturally deprived people. Uh, why is it that, I, I mean, Paris, you know what this is. You, you know whose fault this is. You boomers. It's your fault. You you know, my parents were, the, I don't know what you even call the generation before the boomers. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't, so the silent generation, um, it, you've got the greatest generation. So the silent generation is the generation before the the uh, greatest generation, the, the World War II generation. And it, so my grandparents, I guess they would technically be in the silent generation because uh, they were having kids in, in, while World War II was going on. And I forget what you call that. They're not the boomers, whoever it is before the boomers. And and all of those people made sure that their kids who are, who are Gen X – actually paid attention to pop culture and, and watched the classes. Like my mom, when I was growing up, we watched Casablanca. We, we watched all, all the all the great old Hitchcock movies. We, we watched The Birds. We watched North by Northwest. Uh, we, we watched the Cary Grant movies. We watched the uh, Audrey Hepburn and, and the Catherine Hepburn movies and the Cary Grant movies. We, we watched the classics. I mean, the classics. And it is clear that the boomers have failed society because they raised a generation we call millennials who have no appreciation for classical American pop culture. I mean, they, they've never seen Gilligan's Island. The Beverly Hillbillies, what's that? A bad mood? No. Uh, it just, it's, it's, it's a failure of the boomers. The boomers have failed society almost completely. But that's okay. I, I do have to carve out a caveat here and say that Philip, his parents are awesome, but they clearly neglected to show him like Anthony Hopkins movies. Oh, okay. I got to, I got to move on. 
This, this, I, I, millennials, I don't understand them. I, I'm raising my Gen Z children to actually appreciate the black and white classics. I, at some point, I got to show them Patton, which is my favorite movie. If you ever wanted to break into anything and, and, and you requested a password and asked for favorite movie, Patton, I mean, you can read my, you can read my book that I wrote and Pat, I love that movie. George C. Scott, that opening sequence where they actually had to tone down the profanity to get that movie in, in the screen. If you've never seen the movie Patton before, hands down, it is my favorite movie of all time. I watch that movie. If I'm flipping through TV and that movie is on, I am fixated on that movie. I watched it. I actually sneaked it and watched it when I was 10 years old. My parents were in Abu Dhabi. Yes, we grew up in Dubai. My parents were in Abu Dhabi. They were out of town with my sisters for a softball tournament, and I was home by myself. We had a housekeeper from India. She lived in a little cottage in the back of our house. It's the way you grew up overseas at, at, at that time in the 80s. And my parents had rented Patton, and I decided I was – I didn't even know what it was about. I was fixated on that movie. That is just the greatest movie ever made after Star Wars, but it is the greatest movie ever made. Now, all right, I, I need to move on because I got something I want to get off my chest. I, I saw, I think it was Ligon Duncan. Ligon Duncan is the chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminaries. I'm in RTS in Atlanta, their campus there, and, and Ligon Duncan is in charge of RTS as a whole. A brilliant academic mind uh, and a great theologian, and I think it was him there is a, a conference. Uh, they've done it online now. Usually they do it in person together for the gospel. Mark Dever, uh, Ligon Duncan, uh, Al Mohler, and a number of others. They, they get together for this conference. It's fantastic. And a point, and I think it was him, I think he made it. What is the purpose of the church library or the church bookstore? I hesitate to say church bookstore because my church used to have a bookstore in downtown Macon, and they closed it down. And forever after, the the friend of mine who was the church elder who made the decision to close it down has gotten grief. So I, I never like to say church bookstore, uh, but we do have a great church library. And what is the purpose of the church library? The purpose of the church library is not to provide you all the books about faith. The purpose of the church library is to curate the best books about your faith. So, for example, a church library is not going to have a book on uh, Islam, but it might have a book on Christian apologetics towards Islam. It's not going to have a book on uh, doubting Christianity, but it may have a book on responding to the doubters of Christianity. Now, within the within the the great host of books that your church library may have, it may have theologians who disagree with each other, but are all soundly orthodox Christians. You, you may have Charles Hodge and John Owen and and John Stott, and and you may have um, John MacArthur and Wayne Grudem who disagree on on prophetic gifts uh, in the post apostolic era, but but they're both great Christians, and you'll have them even though they disagree. But you're not going to have Bart Ehrman in there. Bart Ehrman has spent his entire career trying to debunk Christianity. He used to be a Christian, and now he hates it, and he offers up his opinions, hiding behind a Ph.D. to claim his opinions are actually expert knowledge, when typically what he does is he cherry-picks information and says, all of the experts agree with this position, when it's like three crazy people. So you're not going to have him in the church bookstore or the church library. You're going to curate the best of the opinions. Now, I, this is not actually an, a, a monologue I intended to be on the church. It's actually a monologue on conservatism because I, I got a problem within conservatism and we're running into it. Let, 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 me, let me explain this briefly. Yesterday, I started the program and I explained to you how New York is changing its methodology for counting COVID-19. 
it is now going to add presumed cases to those who tested positive prior to death. And there is a great conspiracy now among conservatives that this is done to somehow make the president look bad by inflating the count. And that's not it, actually. Uh, What actually is happening is that the CDC, for accurate reporting right now, insists it only wants confirmed positive tests of COVID-19 people who die. But it wants the states and municipalities to continue tracking the presumed cases of COVID-19 because the CDC tracks the flu as of 2009 by tracking confirmed and presumed cases together. It used to, prior to 2009, only track confirmed cases. It now tracks confirmed and presumed cases. Now, how do they do that? Well, it's pretty easy. You go to the hospital and you got all the symptoms of the flu. You don't need a test for them to treat you for the flu. They code it into the hospital as you have flu-like symptoms or pneumonia-like symptoms. And so while the CDC admits it's not as accurate as giving everyone a test, it's accurate enough that we can get good trend lines for how diseases are progressing. So New York City is still giving the CDC the, the only test information that they want, but they're continuing to track because the CDC asked them to the presumed cases. And now they're releasing those presumed cases to the public, and it's driven up the death rate in New York City uh, by 3,700 people. Well, there is already a conspiracy on the right that uh, this is to undermine the president or some such, and I accurately reported why it's being done. And there are people who will not believe me, and I don't blame them because I am a radio show talk show host and former lawyer. I am not an epidemiologist. I am not an expert in the field, but... I actually called the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and I actually talked to an expert who actually explained the situation to me and referred me to the documentation from 2009 showing how they were changing how the flu is counted and why people are doing it now and showed me the guidance where the CDC is telling states to keep track of presumed COVID-19 cases. I don't expect you to believe me, but you should be able to believe the experts. And yet on the right these days, uh, we no longer want to we no longer want to consider expert opinion. We, we want to have our ears tickled and, and be told what we already think is true as opposed to being challenged based on experts. And I kind of get that. You've got the left trotting out a 16 year old with autism from Sweden or Asperger's from Sweden who claims to be an expert on global warming. And, and they've they put her up and you can't challenge her. She's a child. Well, why, why can't we challenge her? And you see the media do this. The media puts up Malthusian pro-abortion people who believe we got to kill all the kids. Otherwise, we're all going to starve to death. They say, well, this is an expert. So I understand why the right is, is hesitant on experts. I do. But we've lost the ability to discern. Believe it or not, there are people out there who claim to be experts who believe the world is flat. Why should we give that person expert status. And increasingly on the right, what you're finding is people like that will get expert status. Why? Because the other side hates them and says they're not credible. You know, sometimes these people actually aren't credible. Sometimes the left says they're not credible because they're conservatives, because they're free marketeers, because they're capitalists because they're pro-lifers. And and we should be able to discern between the left hates this person because their ideas are opposed to the left or the left hates this person because this person actually is insane. And on the right, we've totally abandoned that ability. And part of it, I think, is 
There are from 2016 still a number of people who, like me, did not support the president in 2016. They don't particularly care for the president now, but they've decided they, they need to be in there to make some money. So they're going to, to tickle the ears of the president's supporters. They're going to tell the president's supporters what they want to hear, what they already believe is true, as opposed to challenging their beliefs by or, or telling them that what they believe isn't necessarily true or, or suggesting they go in a different direction. No, no, they, they want to be so into it to make money off of them that they're willing to play a role as opposed to just giving people truth. I I don't feel like my job here is is to every day come in here and tell you what you already think is true. It's to tell you what I think is true. And and, and if I'm questioned on that, go find experts who could either back me up or tell me I'm wrong. I'm I'm perfectly happy to admit when I'm wrong. I do it all the time. I'm I'm married. It's part of being a guy when you're married. And and yet I just, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the number of people on the right who now are it's kind of like they've descended back into 19th century know nothingism it's 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 better not to accept an expert than to have the expert tell you what you believe is wrong you know within this covid-19 stuff between shutting down and reopening that there are a vast array of actual experts but i like i saw yesterday somebody went out and and they were highlighting an israeli mathematician to tell us that the epidemiological experts are wrong on the spread of the virus. Now, actually, what he was saying is that the virus peaks after 40 days, and he's right on that. Everybody agrees. The question is, how far does it peak? How far does it spread before it peaks? And they they, they completely ignored that. The, the, the willingness of people, particularly on the right, to, to have their ears tickled these days is horrifying to me because the right has always been, the conservatism has always been the philosophy grounded in reality. Grounded in, in, you know, men are sinners, and even the atheists would recognize that, that men need to be pitted against each other to restrain all of their power, separation of powers, the checks and balances. And, and the left has always been who cares about history, who cares about facts, who cares about science. We're in the quest for utopia, so the past doesn't matter. The right has always shaped itself by guiding itself by the experts of the past to understand where we're going to go in the future. And, and yet now they want to reject that and just go on a whim because it's a cult of personality now. we got to get back to curating ideas. We need a church library for conservatism. That's filled with the Hayek's and, and the Friedman's and, and the actual science and the actual experts on uh, of life and, instead of these crazy people who, oh, they licked a stamp on a campaign. Therefore, they're an expert on campaigns like you get on TV these days. Facts and experts should actually matter. And we may not always agree. And there may be experts who use their expertise to, to peddle partisan positions. But we've lost our ability to discern any of that. And at this point, are all experts bad unless they tell me exactly what I want to hear and I'm just not down for that. It is 55 after the hour. I am Eric Erickson, and the phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Governor Purdue, I always say Governor Purdue, Secretary Purdue now, Secretary of Agriculture Purdue, started the show with me today. Uh, And in the third hour, you know, I may replay it. I I haven't decided yet if, if I want to replay the interview in the third hour because I know... There are people who couldn't get in here immediately to hear him right at 9, and there will be other people at 11. Uh, but at 11.30, Drew Eccles is going to join me, and, and I want you to be here for Drew. Uh, Drew is a farmer up in North Georgia, owns one of the big farms that is is really uh, instrumental in the supply chain and is advocating more domestic production and essentially 
reshaping some of our agriculture regulations to make it better for farmers here instead of the, the import agriculture that we have become dependent on to some degree. So I want to talk to him about that, and I know there have been questions uh, about it, uh, and he's a great expert to talk to on this issue. Before I get out of here for this hour, so down in Macon, there is a TV station, WGXA, of the Fox affiliate. And I got to say, I I thought it was bad form, and I'm glad they deleted it. Uh, But they put up a tweet, and I want to read for you their tweet. You know, the governor suspended the mask mask law. There is a mask law in Georgia. It's been on the books since the 50s that prohibits uh, people from wearing masks in public except for holidays. And there are certain exceptions to it. And the governor issued an executive order and carved out an exception. And the exception is if you're wearing a mask in public to prevent the spread of the virus or to prevent contraction of the virus for public safety, you can ignore the law. Uh, And so WGXA News in Macon uh, put out this tweet. Governor Kemp signed an executive order waiving a 1951 law that banned wearing KKK hoods amid the spread of COVID-19. Is it okay for Klan members to wear hoods to prevent spreading the virus? And then there was a helpful picture of Klansmen waving Confederate flags. Y'all, I, I, you know, these sorts of stories bug me because they are obviously designed for clickbait. But it also puts government officials who are trying to do the right thing, obviously do the right thing, in, in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Uh, Had the governor not waived the law, he would be blown up, including by Democrats who asked him to waive the law, uh, for not doing so. And now by waiving the law, it is suggested by a press outlet that maybe this will allow Klansmen to go back to wearing their hoods in public claiming COVID-19 protection. I'm glad they took it down, um, but they shouldn't have put it up in the first place. We need better judgment out there on all sides right now. Hello and welcome. How are you? How's quarantining going? It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. So I got asked a question in email and I feel like I should discuss it with you guys. Uh, you know, Governor Kemp's order is is specific that you should not have visitors into your home. And I had a, a friend, a co-worker who works with me at the resurgent over last night. Uh, and, and was I running afoul of the order? And my response is, is technically perhaps, uh, but in talking to all of the public health officials and the governor's office on the order, uh, if you are outside your home, uh, you don't have people in your house, uh, you limit the number of people and you stay six feet apart uh, they're really not concerned and uh, they're concerned about people having crowds and there actually is a report out. Where is this uh, about enforcement of shelter in place? Yes. A, a Georgia soldier is accused of speeding away from state troopers while driving drunk. An underage boater is charged with alcohol and drug use on a serene North Georgia lake. Members of a South Georgia church attend services despite pleas to stay home. All were cited for violating Brian Kemp's shelter-in-place order. 
but they're among the exceptions. Law enforcement officials have only sparingly used citations to Georgians violating the order, instead opting to take a softer approach to the restrictions imposed to stem the spread of the coronavirus. A review of records by the AJC shows that the Department of Public Safety has issued just 12 citations from April 3rd when the order took effect through Tuesday. The other main state enforcement agency agency enforcing the rule, the Department of Natural Resources, reported one crime. Many Metro Atlanta police departments and sheriff's offices say they fielded a surge of calls about potential incidents. But instead of criminal charges or citations, officers and deputies are educating citizens on the order, avoiding booking violators in jail. We're not aiming to arrest people violating the shelter-in-place order, Captain Jay Baker of the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office said. In an effort to keep our deputies and other inmates safe, we're trying to avoid unnecessary arrests. City of Atlanta police officers, too, haven't issued any citations uh, for violating the mayor's order or the governor's order. In lieu of aggressive ticketing, Georgia State Troopers have issued 200 warnings and closed 20 businesses, including those that voluntarily shuttered after learning details of the order. In all... There have been more than 800 calls since the order went into effect. Most of the calls that the state patrol and other state authorities have received were listed as not sustained, meaning they didn't observe any violation of the state's order. Some raced to investigate secondhand tips or rumors from social media. Several involved homeowners hosting barbecues or other gatherings of more than 10 people who quickly dispersed. Many centered on large gatherings or businesses that opened without exercising social distancing. You know, I got to say, for the rest of the nation, be like Georgia. Uh, yeah, I, I, I had a, a friend and co-worker who sat on my front porch more than six feet away from me, uh, both of us having been quarantined. And I'm okay with anybody doing that. And the, the order allows people uh, to um, provide support for conduct of activities of daily living. And someone not inside my house sitting on my for- porch more than six feet from me, uh, we're, we're not even in the same space, and we're also facing away from each other. I, I don't have a problem with anybody doing that. Uh, I have a real problem with people who are having crowds at their house right now. Uh, and the order is very, very clear that it will be strictly enforced. If you have a crowd of 10 or more at your house, uh, you don't do that. I, I was, I actually, so I have a, um, a storage unit and actually went to the storage unit the other day and there was a, the person who manages the, as best I can figure out. And I don't think I have all of the details, right? But there was a, uh, they were having a party in the back of the facility and it appeared to be a birthday party. And it was a crowd of people, more than 10 people were there hanging out together. And, and it was clearly someone connected to the manager and was allowing them to congregate at at the back of the premises. So I guess no one would report them or something. I I don't know, but I was kind of shocked to see that. Uh, The idea that you're hosting big barbecues and birthday parties is is crazy. But uh, I have seen around my neighborhood people who have one or two people over and they are sitting six or more feet apart from each other. And uh, in fact, I went for a walk last night. And in the back of my neighborhood, there were three ladies who were sitting outside. All of them had their chairs spread out more than they otherwise would. In fact, there was a table in the middle, but they each were further back from the table. So they had they, they had their drinks in their laps uh, and, and they were visiting with each other. I, I don't think anyone should have a problem with that. 
And the governor doesn't have a problem with that. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he's been very clear that he's only strictly enforcing this order at uh, nursing homes, uh, people where, where elderly people live, assisted living facilities, hospice, uh, community living situations, community integrated homes, and of gatherings of 10 or more at houses. And I think that's the right thing to do. It's a reasonable approach. Uh, what I have a bigger problem with more than anything are the nanny staters ratting people out. Now listen, and I want to distinguish between this. If you're having a big gathering at your house right now and there are cars up and down the street and there are people coming in and out of your house, I don't have a problem if someone calls the police and says, hey, this person is clearly running afoul of this order. The rest of us can't do it. Why can this person do it? I don't have a problem with you doing that. But I want to read for you again this portion from the from the AJC that I think is deeply relevant. The Georgia State Patrol has received more than 800 calls, and most of them were listed as not sustained, meaning there was no activity observed that violated the state order. Some of this is actually coming from a good portion of them are coming from beaches. People see a crowd of people hanging out on the beach, and or they see a family on the beach together, and they call 911. They're on the beach. They're not supposed to be on the beach. There are three of them together, and they're on the beach. And the police go out there and, oh, yep, it, it's it's a family, a single family unit walking on the beach together. They, they're not allowing lawn chairs. They're not allowing coolers of beer. It's just, just a family walking on the beach by themselves. Get her! I, I just, the, the nanny statism of some people, or or take the, let me find this out here. Where is this? Uh, I had Charlie, this is uh, the, the Whitmer, the, the governor of... Yeah, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, listen to this. Well, let me tell you this. Michigan has the third most COVID-19 cases in the nation right now, and we are not the third largest state in the nation. That tells you we've got a unique crisis on our hands and that it demands a unique uh, solution. So we just had snow. I've got snow on the ground here in Michigan right now in Lansing. We're expecting you know, up to 30 inches in the Upper Peninsula. The fact that we're cracking down on people traveling between homes or planting or um, landscaping or golfing really for a couple more weeks isn't going to meaningfully impact people's ability to do it because the snow will do that in and of itself. But the more people that are traveling, the more people that touch that gas pump, um, is we know that COVID-19 can last for 72 hours on stainless steel. So think about the people that have to touch that gas pump, the nurses and the police and the paramedics and the pharmacists and the food clerks that are the true superheroes now. If we're all traveling and touching the same, that means we're spreading COVID-19 and might actually take people off the front line who we desperately need to. So unless it's a life-sustaining activity, we're asking people to stay home, to do their part. And for a couple more weeks to, to really buckle down, we're seeing our curve start to flatten, but we all have to continue doing our part. So it's snowing out there. You know, this is a governor who has allowed stores to stay open, but in her order has said you can't sell seeds to people. You can't let people start a garden in their backyard right now, so no seeds. You can buy lottery tickets, but you can't buy garden hoses. This is What has come out of this is a progressive and ritualistic nanny statism by certain people around the country, and it's not just elected officials. 
It's also the would-be dictator who lives next door to you. They, they refer to him these days, the, the Karen phenomenon. It's the nosy neighbor who is, is, is in your backyard and in your business. What was the, um, now I have to Google this because it's, it's going to um, drive me crazy. Nobi, nosy neighbor in Bewitched. Philip won't get this reference either. Yes, Gladys Kravitz. Yes, Gladys Kravitz. Gladys Kravitz was the was the neighbor in in the old sitcom. Now, granted, I shouldn't get this reference either, but the reruns when I was a kid, uh, Bewitched was the show before I was born in the 1960s uh, about the the woman who was married to the guy and she was a witch and none of the neighbors knew it. And it was a very funny show. And she had a very nosy neighbor who realized something was up. And she was the butt of jokes within the TV show. She was always looking in the window, calling the cops, uh, gossiping, reporting the neighbor. Uh, there are lots of Gladys Kravitzes out there. She was the original Karen. And it is uh, astonishing to me the number of people out there who, who are, are just little dictators. Who, oh my goodness, you have someone on your patio with you and your six feet apart. You're not supposed to have this. I'm calling the 911 on you. We, we've, we've lost the ability to distinguish or to discern. We've lost the ability to look at life and say, hey, you know what? This is none of my business. Or we've lost the ability to look at a situation and say, you know what? They're really not hurting anybody. So I'm going to leave them alone. The 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 fine letter of the law. We we have we we got a bunch of would be East Germans around here, who can't leave well enough alone. Who are busybodies who need to feel empowered, and that's really where this is. Is it's it's there are those people who just feel like they need to be empowered. They need to exert themselves. They need to in some way feel more powerful than you. They need to make sure you're following the law. They will not rest until you yourself are as miserable as they are. And there are those who mean well. And there are those who actually realize you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. And what gets lost in the middle is, is this whole discernment. And, and man, maybe the lesson today, instead of going after the media all day, is, is just exercising some level of discernment. You got one person sitting on your front porch. You're six, seven feet away. Is that really something to call the cops about? In some parts of the country, people are calling the police on that. In some parts of the country, people are doing that. In Great Britain, look at Great Britain. In Great Britain, uh, you're not allowed out of your house. You're not allowed out of your house except into your own yard. And then you're only allowed in your yard if, if it is in some way segregated from other people's yards. So if you've got uh, if you've got townhouses in Great Britain and the fronts of the houses don't have have fences between them, you can't go out in your front yard. If you've got fences, if you're roped off the backyard, you're allowed to go out into your backyard. You're allowed to go out of your house in Great Britain to exercise no more than two of you at a time for one time a day. And there are literally people in Great Britain spending their day staring at their neighbors, spying, daring them to come out of their house more than once in a day so that they can call the cops. And that's happening in parts of this country as well. Or, or look in California. I'm assuming you all saw the video. There was a guy by himself jogging on the beach 
in California, and the police tried to arrest him. And what did the guy? The guy just took off. I mean, he picked up speed. He had some reserve energy. And the cop couldn't keep up with him, and he was able to get away from him. And I'm cheering him on the whole time. He was hurting exactly nobody. And you see what this what this actually boils down to is, listen, I I believe we're in a fallen world. I'm a conservative because I'm a Christian. I believe we're all sinners. I want as few sinners in charge of me. People are stupid. I I accept all those things. But I also accept that people are so self-interested that if you explain to them there is a virus that is overwhelming hospitals and if something happens to you, you're probably not going to be able to get into the hospital because of all the people with the virus, unless everybody stays home so we avoid spreading the virus, that a lot of people, guess what? They're going to stay home. In fact, there's a lot of evidence out there that that's actually happening. In fact, the overwhelming evidence from Open Table, which is an uh, online reservation system for restaurants and, and other sources, is that by March 11th, restaurant attendance had dropped 75% of this nation before shelter-in-place orders ever went in effect in the country. People, by and large, want to preserve themselves, and so they're staying home on their own. And that's part of the problem with reopening the country as well. They could come out tomorrow and say, all right, everybody back to work. Everybody go buy out your business, and the odds are nobody would. Some would, but most people wouldn't because they don't want to spread the virus. At some point, you just have to trust people. Even though I all, all, all things being equal, people are sinners, we're in a fallen world, people are stupid. At some point, you have to say, you know what? We got to leave people to their own devices to do the right thing. We can't call 911 on everyone who dares to have somebody come over to their house or or dares to have four people around standing seven feet away from each other. And we got to be mindful of the fact that there will be idiots and, and maybe we do need to deal with the idiots. But there are also a lot of responsible people and we should commend people for trying to be responsible. You can call in if you want to, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to make a case real quick. I I got about five minutes here, less than slightly less than five. I think May 1st should be the date to reopen the country. I I don't think we need to wait until May 15th. And and here's what I think. Uh, There is a lot of data out there now, as I mentioned before we went to break, that Americans were already self-isolating on their own before the government ever told them they had to. And I think what we need to do is we need to be clear and open and honest with people and do it on a regular basis. In fact, if I were the president, I would reshape the press conferences in the afternoon so they're not about fighting uh, the press. They're about this. We have a virus in this country. Of the confirmed cases, 20% who get it wind up in the hospital. We presume that there are more cases than the confirmed cases, uh, but we know from now antibody studies, there was a study released this morning from the Netherlands. We, we now know that it is not as widely spread in the popula- population beyond those tested as we thought. Uh, in the Netherlands, maybe three to five percent of people beyond those tested uh, are showing up positive because testing is so widespread there. So turns out the virus is not as, as spread in the herd as we thought. So I would say if I were president, I would say we want to open the country back up on May 1st. But here's what we've got to do. Those of you who are high risk, you've got to stay home. Those of you who go about in society, you need to wear masks. You need to understand that if this gets loose again, we're going to have to shut it all down again. So don't go out unless you have to. Be smart about it. We do not want to have to do this all over again. And I think that's fair. Educate people as to the risk. 
Let Americans make informed decisions on their own. We've had to stay home. Explain to explain it to people. We've had to stay home for a couple of weeks because we've had a testing backlog. We've had a backlog in the supply chain of getting masks to people. And we absolutely positively needed you to stay in place so that we did not overwhelm hospital capacity. But hospitals are now not getting overwhelmed. The testing supply chain is resolved and the mass shortages is be mass shortages being resolved and will be by May 1st. So on May 1st, if you feel the need to venture out of your house, venture out of the house. But if you can stay home, stay home. Businesses are encouraged to still have people telecommute. Businesses are encouraged to still have people not come to the office. But at that point, you know the risks, you know what's involved, and go out of the house if you need to go out of the house. Now, I suspect what you're going to see is a lot of people still won't. But I think by May 1st, if if we focus on educating the public, if we explain to them the supply chain issues, if we explain to them the, the testing backlog, if we explain to them why they had to stay home, and explain to them that they should still stay home, but we're no longer gonna gonna use the police to keep you at home. I think people will be reasonable in venturing out. Why? Because ultimately, everyone has a survival instinct. And if you understand that if the hospitals get overwhelmed, there's gonna be a backlog, and you who have a heart attack aren't gonna get into the hospital because your bed's already taken by a COVID-19 patient, you're probably gonna stay home so that you don't overwhelm hospital capacity. What we're not doing right now is, is there are still so many people in the national media and with the president yelling at each other. We're not really educating people. And there are so many people on the right who are so institutionally invested in pushing back on the media that they're not actually willing to explain the facts or they're not willing to believe the facts. They're not even willing to believe the president. You got a bunch of people who are the president's supporters who don't want to believe the president at this point because they're convinced that that he's being, the deep state has infiltrated and, and they've taken over. And I just, I'm not willing to go there. But I do think that May 1st is a reasonable date to begin voter education now to get people up and going by then. It makes sense to me. We should be doing it. We need to be doing it. It's time to let people start living their life again, if we can, by May 1st, and just educate them, tell them the risks, treat them as adults, let them be adults, and hope for responsible people. We'll be back. Stacey Abrams is in the news. We should discuss. I'm here. I'm here. I'm just tangled up in my headphone. <laughs> Welcome in my earpiece, I should say. Welcome. The phone number, if you would like to call in, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. To the phones, I'm going to go to Jack and Conyers. You are going to be next. Welcome. Hello, Eric. Hi there. Uh, long-time listener. Uh, I had a comment about your comments on the census yesterday. Uh you were commenting about the fact that uh, many of the people in South Georgia aren't responding <clears throat> to the census, and that may be due to the poor Internet connections down in South Georgia. If you don't have a good Internet connection, that means you may not be as uh, computer literate or computer savvy, and so those people uh, cannot get onto the computer or... Uh, be able to, you know, fill out the census form. 
That's a good point. That, that's actually a very good point. Uh, and it is a problem down in South Georgia. And I, I think that they're mindful of it, but there really isn't a solution to it. Although, you know, I talked to Jeff Duncan two weeks ago, lieutenant governor, and, and he talked about that, that the, one of the, the issues here with this situation is we're realizing uh, where we're deficient in, in areas of the state, including in technology, particularly in rural Georgia, in addition to it being hard to get jobs out to rural Georgia because of the lack of infrastructure and technical infrastructure. It, it's hard to do things like the census online when you're in a rural part of the state and we can't go knocking on doors to get the census done. So what are we going to do? We're going to have to figure something out. Uh, and that is that's gonna have to be a um, it's gonna have to be an issue that we deal with. You know, that's one of the things th- th- this pandemic is is helping us explore, and it's why I've asked a particular question to to all the people I've been interviewing: is what are the things that we have done that we realize now we did not need to do? What are the things we have not done that we realize now we do need to do? And this gets to a point I made a couple of weeks ago. Maybe it was last week. I don't know. They all run together now when you're at home. Um, at least I'm wearing, well, shorts today, but I'm putting clothes on and, and taking a shower and brushing my teeth. Um, the presuppositions we make when we head into crisis. Uh, if you come out of crisis and everything you believe to be true headed into the crisis is still true on the other side, you probably haven't actually paid attention you are probably so dogmatic in your beliefs that you're not persuadable uh, that maybe you got something wrong. And, and that's actually on you. It's it's not on the crisis. It's not on anyone else. And what I mean by that in particular is that everyone goes into crisis believing certain things to be true. And there has never been a crisis in the history of mankind where when you come out on the other side uh, that your your basic policy proposals are not shaken. And if you come out on the other side and you believe that everything you just believe going into it is is still hunky-dory and true and there's no reason to make any changes, uh, you haven't actually assessed realistically the crisis because there's never been one. There's never been a war where your plans went according exactly according to how you planned before the war started. This doesn't mean your underlying truths can't be the same. Uh, I, I start this thing thinking there is a God. I end this thing thinking there is a God. I start this thing thinking God is capable of bringing global pandemic and calling people back to him and calling people to repent. I, I, I end thinking, yep, that's true. But I start a global pandemic thinking, you know what? Uh, we got a bunch of, we got a bunch of people out there who believe in, in socialism on demand and, and it's a bad thing. And we get out of here still thinking, you know what? There are people who think socialism on demand is a good thing and it's actually bad, but When the government shuts down all the businesses and tells you you can't work, the government does owe you compensation for making you not work. You head into a crisis thinking, you know, the government should not be spending money on the demand side of the equation uh, to keep the economy afloat. You come out of the equation thinking, you know what, I may not agree, but maybe they needed to. Maybe I'm not going to pound my chest so hard against them doing it this time, given the circumstances. The, the war plan and the war are never the same thing. And if you think it is, uh, you're going about life in some way that that is fundamentally slipping. And one of the things is we knew ahead of time there were problems in South Georgia when it came to technology. And guess what? This crisis is exposing the fact that we do have real problems in South Georgia.
we now realize how much more extensively those problems are. We knew there was a problem. We didn't realize they were as bad when it comes to, to technology and, and, and things like that. One of the good things that comes out of a crisis, if there is a silver lining, one of the good things is that we realize some of the things we did before really aren't necessary. And some of the things we did before are actually even more necessary. We realize that some of the regulations we put in place are still necessary, but a lot of the regulations are no longer necessary. I talked about this with, with Sonny Perdue in the first hour. I've talked about it with Brian Kemp, that we're finding that there are institutions and people and businesses stymied by regulation that could help, that want to help, that can't help because regulation is in the way. And maybe those regulations of the 21st century that were put in place in the 19th or early 20th century, they're, they're not necessary in a 21st century economy. And we should be willing to assess those things and, and change. Uh, I do, though, have a sneaking suspicion that we won't do a lot of that, maybe at the state level, but at the federal level, I don't think we will because there's so much institutional investment in keeping a lot of the systems in place. And that's a problem. Now, I do want to get to the Stacey Abrams situation, but a friend of mine flagged this for me at the bottom of the hour. Uh, Peter Lightart, is this a judgment? Is the world under judgment? Is COVID-19 the kind of pestilence Yahweh warns of when he says through Jeremiah that Judah will be plagued by sword, famine, and pestilence? It's hard to read it any other way. An individual illness is a trial. A worldwide pandemic is of a different order. A burglary is a test. Invasion and plunder are judgments. It's difficult to read biblical descriptions of cities and nations under judgment without being struck by the resemblance to the world April 2020. Our city streets are silent. There is no longer the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, not even the wailing of a funeral dirge. Many merchants have closed their doors and the shops of many craftsmen have gone quiet. The music of harpists and musicians and flute players has stopped. Concert halls and theaters throughout the world are empty. Cities are soundscapes and silent cities are cities under the Lord's discipline. Churches too are soundscapes and places of assembly. Now they're empty and still. We should ponder the possibility that God himself has had enough of our trampling of his courts and so has put an end to our new moons and feast days. Some will say the virus didn't do all this. The response to the virus did. There's truth to that, but it doesn't alter the point. The pestilence and shutdown have produced a situation that looks an awful lot like a judgment of biblical proportion. And then there's this. Pay attention to this part. Yuval Levin has wisely observed that our contemporary politics of catastrophism, where everything is a life and death crisis, has disabled us from discerning the difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary. But our inflation of the rhetoric of crisis doesn't mean crises don't happen. Not every moment is a time of exceptional crisis, but a few moments are. This is one of those moments. You know, I have noticed that, and this gets to the same point of uh, people not willing to reevaluate the things that, that they thought were so. The language of partisanship that we're using in a time of global pandemic and economic meltdown is the same language we used three months ago. The left blames the right. The right blames the left. There's the conspiracy of the deep state. There's the conspiracy of the Russians. Uh, everybody's ignoring the China. Well, the, the, the conservatives aren't ignoring the Chinese. The media sure is. 
It's just striking to see that the same arguments today in the face of global pandemic and worldwide economic collapse are the same arguments being used several months ago, that the same blame games being played. No one wants to say, okay, guys, this is actually a real crisis now. Step up. Everybody, everybody find a solution. No, no, it, it's it's your bad guys from a month ago or your bad guys now, your good guys are, are still the same. No one on the left wants to give the president any credit for any of the good stuff he actually did, and he did do a lot of good stuff, including stopping travel with China. People on the right don't want to credit people on the left. They don't want to credit Gavin Newsom of California for being hyper-responsive. They don't want to blame the president for, for anything. It, we're still in the exact same world. You know, there were a lot of people in the early days of this as it was shaping up to clearly be something catastrophic to the global economy. There were some people who said, you know what, maybe, maybe this will be eye-opening and people will finally realize there are bigger things, more important things. Nope, nope, not happening. Not not happening. Uh, and, and meanwhile, we've got Stacey Abrams uh, still out there. And um, it's just, it, it, it's confounding the situation. It's it's unfortunate, um, but I think we will come through it. And I do think when we get to the other side, people are going to sit down, at least at the state level, and say, what can we do differently? Maybe some of the regulatory folks will. Now, th- that leads me into the Stacey Abrams stuff. It, it does seem that she is campaigning to be uh, the vice presidential nominee for the Democrats. There's an op-ed in the in the New York Times. It's obvious whom Joe Biden should pick as vice president. The subtitle is, he needs a running mate who strengthens the ticket in areas where he's weakness. One person stands out. Uh, Steve Phillips, he's a podcast host, Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. I don't know anything about him otherwise. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, which is a left-wing think tank, and he's the author of... Brown is the new white, how the demographic revolution has created a new American majority. As Joe Biden formally begins his vice presidential selection process, he needs to find a running mate who strengthens the Democratic ticket in the area where he's weakest. The nomination contest has highlighted three sizable shortcomings that imperil his quest to defeat President Trump. First, he has failed to generate nearly any interest let alone meaningful support among young people in the presidential primaries. Second, he has consistently lost the Latino vote. And third, he suffers from a well-documented enthusiasm gap that could undermine his candidacy in the same way that Hillary Clinton failed to generate voter excitement, resulting in a drop in voter turnout among key constituencies, particularly African-Americans. Mr. Biden's minuscule levels of support among voters 18 to 29 has been alarming. Blah, 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 blah. And then he finally gets to the point. Of the people most often mentioned as being on the vice presidential shortlist, Stacey Abrams is the one he should go with. A close examination of the electoral track record of the possible partner shows that Ms. Abrams best offers what Mr. Biden most needs. To be clear, Abrams is on the board of the Center for American Progress, where I'm a senior fellow. In terms of success with young people, Barack Obama's political popularity is unquestioned. Of the potential nominees, only Ms. Abrams outperformed Mr. Obama in her state. And I mean, y'all... The, the the movement is on, and, and Abrams, I guess it was in Vanity Fair, suggested, yes, she'd love to be. She thinks she's good. She, I, I have a hard time seeing 
an open campaign for Abrams to be vice president actually helps Abrams. Maybe it does. But you want someone, if Joe Biden were to keel over tomorrow, who could be vice, who could become president, and Abrams has never actually won a statewide race. She, she's been a state representative in Georgia, and that's it. And people on the left, they, they got so whipped into diversity. And part of this, can we be honest here, a lot of this uh, on the white liberal side is white guilt. They so emotionally invested themselves in, in Beto O'Rourke in Texas that they ignored Andrew Gillum in Florida and Stacey Abrams in Georgia, uh, two candidates who are actually more, much more viable and came closer to winning uh, than Beto O'Rourke did in Texas. And so there's a lot of white guilt that, oh, we, we ignored these black candidates and now we need to boost them. Listen, I, I think Abrams is a credible person. I, I think she's an actually is a nice person. I have met her. I disagree with her completely on pretty much everything in politics. But she's a good person, but she's not qualified to be vice president of the United States. She's been a a state representative in Georgia, period. Uh, She tried to run for higher office and she lost. She she didn't even make it into a runoff. People people free. Oh, she had it stolen. No, she couldn't even get into a runoff. I I, I don't I, I understand the left's love affair now with Stacey Abrams and in so much of it is premised in guilt. But the reality of the matter is she's not at a level of a of a. Um, Kamala Harris, who got elected statewide as attorney general in California, is, is a U.S. senator. Or um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Governor Gresham in, in New Mexico, who's the first statewide elected Hispanic female in the Democratic Party, was a health commissioner, a congresswoman, and now a governor. Uh, there, there are way more people ahead of Stacey Abrams in terms of qualifications uh, than her. And and it is something about the PR machine behind Stacey Abrams that I think behind the scenes increasingly is rubbing some Democrats law. And I've heard from some of them on the national scene that, that basically the who does she think she is? She was a state rep. You got people like Kamala Harris or, or Amy Klobuchar or um, Governor Grisham from New Mexico who fit the bill better than Abrams, who on the ticket still probably couldn't get Joe Biden to win Georgia. Want to be on the show? And Call Eric That, now. I think, is one of those issues where we're going to have to, we as a people are going to have to recognize that there is a level of, there is a level of media generated love affair that doesn't necessarily comport with reality. Well connected. And that in and of itself, I think is going to cause us problems. I've had to switch to, if you're wondering what happened there, um, so my headphones broke. As I was trying to go to commercial break, uh, the sound completely cut out on me, and I couldn't tell that the sound was being played to go to commercial break. And so that's what happened. Well, now I've had to put the big cans on my head to, to resolve the issue. So we won't have that anymore. Let's go to the phones now that I can actually hear phone callers coming through as well. Uh, Bernard, you're going to be next on the program. Welcome. Hello? Well? Who are you I asking can... for? Is Bernard? Yeah. Is that you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, would you be so kind to uh, ask a, uh, a good Friday question for me? How sure. can we squeeze in three days and three nights from 3 o'clock Friday afternoon to early Sunday morning? Oh, that that is a good question. Okay. Um, I, I can give you the answer that I have from seminary. Uh, and that is, um, well, let, let me, let me give you as part of the story of Esther, uh, Esther in Esther four, Esther four, Esther five, Esther four, I believe, 
um, says uh, that the, the Jews should fast for three days. Uh, they should neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. Uh, and on the third day, Esther went into the king's palace. Um, and if we were to read it literally, she shouldn't have done it on the, until the fourth day. And the same with Jonah. Uh, that Jonah was in the belly of the beast for three days and three nights, but he actually came out of the the beast on the third day. Uh, Now, what this suggests is that there is a pattern in Jewish literature, particularly related to the Old Testament, that uh, if a part of a day is involved, it's considered that day. I I don't know. I don't know if this makes sense to you, but so you had Friday, Saturday, rose again on the third day. Uh, Jesus went on the grave on Friday, was was in the grave on Saturday, and came out on Sunday. So for if you look at what happened in Esther and you look at what happened in Jonah, it, it fits the same pattern. Uh, and if you go to ancillary Jewish literature from the time, that if a part of the day was affected, it was considered in, in the other ancillary Jewish literature also all that the whole day was affected. So even though Jesus went in the grave in the afternoon of the Friday, uh, it would have the, the box, so to speak, would have been checked. He was in the grave for that day, uh, and then he was in the grave on Saturday, and then he didn't come out until sunrise on on the third day. So that would check the box for the third day. That actually fits the pattern for Jonah as well. That uh, Jonah was in the belly of the beast. The Bible says, let me actually pull up the the verse here from what um, Jesus says. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great beast, so with the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in in the heart of of the earth. Jonah was actually he wasn't in for a full first day, second day, third day, and out on the fourth day. Jonah was actually in for the first day, the second day, and came out on the third day. Uh, Esther in the book of Esther says neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. And then on the third day, not the fourth day, she appears. And and so all of this, and when you couple it with the ancillary literature that circulated among the Jewish people at the time, would count a full day even for part of a day. I hope that makes sense to you. There actually is a reason there. Now, there are some people who speculate that, you know, maybe because of uh, the way John writes, there's a suggestion maybe he was actually crucified on a Thursday, was in the ground uh, all day Friday, all day Saturday, and came out Sunday. Maybe that's it. But the prevailing sentiment, uh, scholarly sentiment, is there actually is a pattern in Jewish literature of treating partial days as full days. And so he was in the ground on Friday, he was in the ground on Saturday, he was in the ground Sunday morning and, and came out, therefore treat them all as, as three days. That is the answer, I think. Uh, and it also makes sense when you compare it to the Old Testament comparisons that were used for the crucifixion. Partial days counted as full days. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. So normally I wear an earpiece, an, an IFB piece like you do on TV, because I, I, I hate to have big cans on my head when I live stream, because I think it looks ridiculous. Uh, I also hate to hear my own voice on the radio. But... My earpiece, if you were listening in the last hour, it broke right as we were going to break, and I couldn't even tell we were going to break. Uh, so I had to I had to put on these these cans, and I really don't like hearing my voice on the radio. I, I really don't. Um, okay, I, I, there's a story. I, I, where is this? Uh, this is from the Macon Telegraph in Macon, and it is, it's actually, there, there's, there's a reason I bring this up, and it is it's curious to me. 
Let me read you uh, this article. A nursing home in Macon has more than 60 confirmed cases of COVID-19. Pruitt Health, Macon, on Anthony Road, has 68 confirmed cases of the new coronavirus. The only two Pruitt Health nursing homes that have more cases in Georgia than Macon's are located in Fulton County and Darty County, according to Pruitt Health website. Pruitt Health Macon has 11 pending tests and 113 negative tests. We know how stressful this time is for our patients and their loved ones, says Neil Pruitt Jr., the chairman and CEO of Pruitt Health. That's why we decided to publish location-specific COVID-19 data on our website. Pruitt Health announced on April 8th that Pruitt Health Macon, along with other facilities, were operating at alert code red status after having at least one case, but the facilities were waiting on confirmation from the CDC. By initiating alert code red for these centers, Pruitt Health has continued to implement enhanced infection control protocols, including increasing cleaning frequency, postponing communal activities, ceasing visitation and screening staff and patients daily. You mean what the governor's order requires you to do. Pruitt Health runs three nursing home facilities in Macon, including Pruitt Health Eastside at Pruitt Health Peak, both of which have confirmed COVID-19 cases, according to a long-term facility report. Three other nursing homes in Bibb County have had either a resident or staff member test positive. Archway Transitional Care Center on Houston Avenue, Macon Rehab and Healthcare on Coliseum Drive, and Zebulon Park Health and Rehabilitation on Plantation Parkway. It was unclear as of press time Wednesday whether the positive cases at Pruitt Health Macon were reflected in the COVID-19 case numbers. Now, what are the COVID-19 case numbers right now? They will revise at noon in an hour, less than an hour from now. But for now, every county in the state of Georgia, save for two, has COVID-19 cases. Tolliver and Glasscock have no reported cases. However, it is most likely that they do have those cases. Uh, they just have not actually... Um, found them or they haven't been tested. There are 15,454 confirmed cases now based on testing. 3,040 are hospitalized. 584 have died. The hospitalization rate is 19.6 in line with the global average of, of 20%. The death rate is 3.78% below the, the, the nationwide average of 3.9% very slightly and below the global average of 5%, which is good. The, the Pruitt Health thing, it, it was a curious timing to me because I received a phone call from a listener. The listener claims to work at Pruitt and suggested that there were problems there. And he was very concerned. Uh, concurrent to that, we, we know someone who had worked there and, and didn't feel comfortable continuing to work there and left. And I, I don't know anything about the company, and I don't want to slight them, but I thought it was very interesting that you have a, a story come out in the paper, and before the story had come out in the paper, I was already hearing from people who were concerned with uh, the company's procedures in place, and now we've got 68 confirmed cases of the coronavirus uh, at their facility on Anthony Road in Macon. Now, I I, I don't want to uh, slider disparage the company. It just, it, it was an interesting coincidence. It, and there's a larger point here. And that is that the data coming from nursing homes and assisted living facilities is not up to par with everything else. 
And this is has more to do with federal regulation and federal control than state control. Uh, those entities tend to get Medicare and Medicaid. And as a result, the federal government overly regulates them than the state government does. And the state government is complaining about the information coming from the nursing home facilities in the state. The, the, the state, the governor, you heard him say it here, that, that that's one of the problems is getting the data out of the nursing homes. And the federal government now is starting to say that nursing homes necessarily are not necessarily giving them the data they need. There are clear problems within the infrastructure and the institutions of nursing homes to be able to report the data accurately. And there are real concerns. And in fact, we have seen over and over and over around the world that uh, the reason for spikes in mortality around the world has been inside nursing homes. Uh, Senior citizens uh, in care at nursing homes are the ones most impacted, whether it's been in New Orleans, whether it's been in Amsterdam, whether it's been in London, whether it's been in Seattle, whether it's been in New York. Uh, Once it gets into nursing homes, my goodness gracious, uh, bad things happen. And so it it seems like we may need to reevaluate the nursing home situation in this country uh, nationally when this is over. Now, the phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. want to go up to Clarksville, Georgia and talk to Richard. Richard, welcome to the program. Hey, Richard. Hey, uh, before I get to my question, I need to give you just a slight bit of background. I moved to Manassas, Virginia in 2003, and Northern Virginia was doing a test of Wi-Fi, or not Wi-Fi, but but, uh, Internet over power lines. Yes. Which would enable everyone to have a plug-in modem into any, any wall socket in their house and have Internet. It was it was lauded as a huge success in 2003, 2004. All the congressmen came to Manassas and went to that uh, North, I think it's Novec, Northern Virginia Electric yeah. Membership Corporations or whatever. And everyone said it was the most fantastic thing. Everyone could get it in rural areas. Well, that was 2003, 2004, and it vanished. Is there any way you can find what happened to it? Uh, you, you know, so it, so Richard, it's funny you say that. Let, let me let me give you a a, a brief story of my life. I, I was a lawyer in Macon uh, until 2005, and I actually took a job with the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, the NRECA, in uh, Northern Virginia which is the uh, trade association and lobbying group for EMCs, power EMCs around the country. And it was right at the time that they were looking at this and and exploring doing it. And if I recall, uh, there were all sorts of technical challenges with the program. It sounded great. And there were all sorts of efforts in this country and elsewhere to do it. Uh, and the FCC actually issued a memorandum sometime in the middle of the 2000s. Hang on a second. Let me. Yeah. Uh, August 3rd, 2006, the, the FCC adopted a memorandum opinion and an order on broadband over power lines, giving the go ahead to promote broadband service to all Americans. The order rejected calls from aviation, business, commercial, amateur radio and other sectors of spectrum to limit or prohibit deployment. Uh, the FCC chairman at the time, Kevin Martin, who I know, uh, said it held great promise as a ubiquitous broadband standard. 
The problem, however, has been interference, uh, and it has not been something that ultimately a lot of the power companies in the nation have wanted to do because there is line interference, among other things, they have to uh, deal with. In fact, let me read you this now. I've actually pulled up Wikipedia now while we've been talking. There are many ways in which the communication signal may have error introduced into it. Interference, cross-chatter, some active devices, some passive devices all introduce noise or attenuation into the signal. When error becomes significant, the device is controlled by the unreliable signal may fail. You can get interference from nearby systems that cause signal degradation. You get devices such as relays, transistors, and rectifiers create noise. And you get transformers and DC to DC converters attenuate input frequency signal almost completely. Uh, these can cause problems. You may have to have bypass. Ultimately, what it came of it, uh, there were all sorts of technical challenges, including the major frequencies that were used around the world were disruptive of it, uh, and it became harder and harder. Now, there's still experimentation with it. The problem, however, continues to be that it, it has not proven itself reliable, and because it has not proven itself reliable... Uh, you've got all sorts of uh, power companies out there hesitant to engage with it. You know, it is a fascinating concept. It's funny Richard should mention this. Now, the reason this comes up, if you're just tuning in in the last hour, we were talking about the, the census situation. And down in South Georgia, uh, they're urging people to do the census online, but people can't get online in South Georgia or in parts of North Georgia. I, I've had more people, including Congressman Doug Collins, call this program and complain about Windstream. I don't know anything about Windstream, but I, 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 even the congressman complains about it. And in South Georgia, there are problems with access to the Internet, and they need people to take the census. You need to take the census, but people don't have access to the Internet in some places to be able to do it. you got to go to a public library. Well, you can't go to the library right now because the library is closed. And so power over over power, internet over power lines became a thing. And there was technology, as Richard was saying, and I remember because it was right before I went to work for the NRECA up in Virginia that, that deals with uh, local EMCs around the country. And they were having problems. It was interference in the lines. It sounded really good. There was a pilot project in Virginia. And one of the things, if I don't hold me to this, folks, don't hold me to this. But I'm about, I'm about 90% sure that there was new in, in, in Northern Virginia, a lot of the infrastructure, because of the explosion of growth in Northern Virginia, they had a lot of new infrastructure and it worked fine there. But on older power lines and older power grids, there was so much interference for other stuff, it really didn't actually work out well. And they wound up not being able to deploy it as much as possible. It, it sounds like a great solution, but the interference issues have for years caused all sorts of problems. It, it should be a great solution. You know, the other one is, is satellite. Uh, satellite uh, broadband sounds good until you actually think about it. Um, how far up or are uh, satellites? Satellites can be up uh, thousands of miles. And it's actually quicker the way light travels. Because remember, your internet signal travels at the speed of light. It is quicker to go from California to New York than it is to go from New York up into a satellite and then back down to California. The straight line path that an internet wire tends to, to face, even with the routing along the way, is, is a shorter path than going up to space and back. So you've got buffering problems. You've got streaming problems. It's very hard to do satellite internet. It sounds cool. What people forget is the distance. 
There, It actually is pretty far up to get a stationary satellite uh, or any other satellites, even in low Earth orbit. You're still talking about lots of mileage on the way up and then on the way back. It, it's double the miles. We got to find ways to build out internet infrastructure in the country, particularly in rural areas. And, and maybe satellite is a way to do it t- to some degree. Maybe broadband over power lines is a way to go to some degree. Uh, but these are not, there are all sorts of trade-offs with the approaches. The one thing I know for certain is that until we can find ways to improve the infrastructure in rural parts of the state, we're still going to be stymied in getting businesses to move those areas. We need, for example, in middle Georgia, we, we middle Georgia should all come together and tell Bibb County, uh, let us work with you on this airport. Because if Middle Georgia would expand that runway at the Middle Georgia Regional Airport and come together, they could build a regional aviation hub uh, for cargo capacity, which would offload jobs from the Atlanta airport, which would free up runway space from Atlanta. But also it would incentivize uh, commuter air, co- commercial air travel as well for passengers. And I know there have been efforts underway, and there actually is a flight now there in, in the Middle Georgia Airport that gets up to Washington, D.C. that is always full, and that's great. Uh, but you got to be able to draw people away from having to drive to Atlanta or Tallahassee to the airport, and right now there's not. And and Middle Georgia's primed for this, but I, I swear to you that the Bibb County government can be so dysfunctional sometimes, and it just makes sense to me that you, you need to, to stick 500 more feet on that runway and get local governments in the area participating collaboratively together and from there, you start building up infrastructure, and you can actually start building. You can actually incentivize people to move into Wilkinson County, which is a rural part of the state where land is cheap, and you could put a business there and say, "Hey, you know what? If you work here, you don't have to drive. To, your your business doesn't have to drive to Atlanta. Your cargo doesn't have to come from Atlanta. It, it, you can go go to Macon. It's a lot closer." But there's got to be a better collaborative approach. And one of the things I've I found in being on talk radio. Uh, being an elected official in middle Georgia for a while, being involved in politics, is that a lot of South Georgia counties, uh, they don't collaborate necessarily as well as the metro Atlanta counties do because resources are so much more scarce. They're all deeply more covetous of the resources. In Atlanta, increasingly, they take a regional approach because of transportation and and commuting. Uh, But you go down to South Georgia, someone lives in a county, the odds are they work in that county. There's no reason to do that level of collaboration. And that, to some degree, is going to have to change if we're really going to attract business and development to other parts of the state. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, I want to talk to Drew Eccles, who uh, owns and runs a farm up in North Georgia about the supply chain. He's got an an op-ed in the newspaper in Gaines want to talk to him about it, about the supply chain and, and uh, dependency on Americans for American farm products. Before we get there, though, th- this this stood out to me. Uh, as governments fumbled their coronavirus response, these four got it right. And it lists Taiwan and Iceland and South Korea and Germany as countries that flattened the curve early. Uh, and it, what's so interesting though, I, I, I do have to say is that they use total deaths reported as opposed to per capita. And when you look per capita, Iceland is one of the worst, but they, they list Iceland as one of the best, but here's what I think is, is so fascinating about this four countries, four, this gets missed in so much of the partisan sniping, four countries according to CNN, got it right. 
out of how many? Close to 198, 200 countries. I forget how many there are now. It's not like the United States or the president did a bad job. And by the way, per capita, the United States actually has done a pretty decent job. In fact, per capita, the United States has done a better job than Iceland. This article at CNN lists a number of things that were done right and early. For example, be prepared, be quick, test, trace, quarantine, use data, use technology, be aggressive, get the private sector involved, act preventatively, use technology, but respect privacy. All of these sorts of things. Uh, you can dry, do drive-through testing, learn from the past, test more, build capacity, uh, no-nonsense things, things that we're doing. What I find interesting, however, is that they, they, what I see in this pattern in the media is that they're doing selective use of per capita. Now, what, what do I mean by per capita? When, when you break down the, the number of deaths or the number of, of uh, cases per thousand or per million, you know, the United States is one of the more, more populous countries on planet Earth. It is spread out. It has more regions. It has 50 states. It has urban areas. It has rural areas. It is easier to fly across country than to take a train, not because of train capacity, but because trains never had the capacity because the country's so big. You drive 500 miles in Switzerland, guess what? You're going to be in a whole other country. You're in northern Italy and you head east, west, or north, you've got a, a plethora of countries to go to. In the United States, guess what? You do that in the United States, you're still in the United States unless you're on the border. You drive 500 miles from the middle of Texas, you're still in Texas at the end of the 500 miles. To compare the United States to a lot of these other countries in, in anything really is wrong. It is better to look at things per capita. How many people per thousand or per million are, are getting the virus? The United States is actually doing better. The United States is not like Italy. And in touting Iceland, a country that is performing worse than anywhere else per capita as some sort of success story is deeply diluted. But what I think is more important here is they've only got four success stories. And on the whole planet, only four countries are worth noting. Uh, so how is it that the media treats the U.S. as a spectacular failure when, in fact, every country's largely behaved the same on this stuff? should give everybody some perspective on this. When we come back, Drew Eccles, we're going to talk about farms and agriculture. One of my favorite things on planet Earth is pumpkin bread. And if you want a great pumpkin bread recipe, uh, go to jmorefarms.com and they have a pumpkin bread recipe. Uh, and you can put a streusel on top. Yeah, it's good stuff. And the farm manager happens to be Drew Eccles. It is his family farm, and he is joining me by phone. Drew, how are you? Good morning, Eric. How are you doing? I'm great. Now, I, I've always said J. Moore Farms. Is, is is J. Moore the actual pronunciation? That's it. That's it. That stands for Jimmy Allen Eccles. That's my grandfather's name, and my grandmother's maiden name was uh, Morrison. Well, it, look, I yeah, first, I appreciate what you guys do, and, and I actually have somebody, gosh, I cannot actually remember who sent it to me, but I, I mentioned on radio in Atlanta uh, my love of pumpkin bread, and somebody sent me – it's been a couple of years now – the recipe 
that you guys have on your website, and it's a good one in addition to the other recipes. But that's not why you're here to here to talk to me about. I'm just I love pumpkin, but nonetheless. Um, <laughs> It's hard to beat. It really is. I don't even <laughs> like pumpkin bread, and I like our pumpkin bread. So there you well, go. there, there you go. Uh, it, it's a great recipe. But you had a uh, you, you had an op-ed in in the Gainesville Times about buying American, and a, a friend of mine sent it to me. I had not seen it. I, I had Sonny Purdue on this morning to talk about the supply chain issues American farmers are having, and he talked about how it, it's kind of a, a bifurcated system between the commercial industry of for farms and produce and the residential and it, it, you have a hard time moving from one to the other and I, I was reading your op-ed and it struck me that that this is very much I, I think what he was kind of getting at here that you guys sell a lot to restaurants and, and schools and guess what there are no restaurants and schools right now absolutely about 60 percent of our produce is sold at our retail markets and then 40 percent goes to schools and, and restaurants and that that's a substantial amount and when you get caught so off off guard, so to speak, I mean, you, you have to get really creative as far as moving crops and things like that. And unfortunately, you got a lot of uh, farmers across the southeast that their farm is 100% wholesale accounts. Uh, they, they have no retail operations of their own. So <laughs> you know, how does that work? It don't work. That's that's the problem. Yeah. I mean, there's coolers full of produce all over South Georgia. There's fields full of produce in South Georgia and Florida, and it's just a tough field to swallow. And we're we're seeing those stories of of farmers having to pour out the milk, and now there are reports about uh, cattle cattle farmers having to basically slaughter cows to drive up prices because uh, the, the middlemen are are basically bankrupting them right now. It's it's not an easy business to be in ever, but particularly right now. Right. I, I mean, when you start thinking about how much uh, food that the, you know, the school systems in America use, the restaurants, the entertainment business, I've got a friend that's one of the largest caterers in the state of Georgia, and, and he was talking to me that just the event that they canceled in the month of April was over a tractor and trailer load of lettuce. I mean, that is a an enormous amount of lettuce. You, you know, I mean, you, you, mm-hmm. you think it's just one load, but that, that's, that's probably, if I had to guess, that's enough for 20,000 salads. You know, wow. I, I, it's, just, it's just tough. It's just tough all the way around. So how are you guys adapting? Well, we, you know, we've been kind of fortunate that there has been some press the past couple of weeks. And, I mean, we've been banging it out on social media and trying to, trying to tell this story, not just for me. But, but our markets are open year-round, and they're considered essential. And, and listen, we're selling a lot of Georgia-grown and American-grown produce right now. Um, I, I think it's just – I hate to – you know, I, I don't want to be one of those uh, – I don't want to be negative Nancy, and I don't want to be a poor, pitiful me. But I, I'm telling you that we got to get out of the box. We've got to demand our produce come from our country. I'm not worried about Mexico. I'm worried about my friends that I serve on boards with in South Georgia and in Florida and South Carolina in the southeastern United States. That's who I'm worried about. I'm not worried about those other countries right now. I'm right. worried about our farms being healthy. Well, and let's talk about that because we, we are, and you mentioned you're up at in Gainesville, that we, we have a seasonal growing period for things that is similar to some places like Mexico. And yet uh, a lot of times because of price, Americans, American businesses prioritize buying from abroad as opposed to con, uh, propping up the American farm industry through direct purchases here. And, and I realize we've got the, the new farm to table craze and restaurants and things, but that's not sufficient compared to the retail markets out there. 
So my workers, I bring in guys. I bring in um, H-2A workers on visas. They're legal. They're documented. They're they're probably their records are probably cleaner than mine, just to be honest with you. And um, and they come from Mexico, and and I pay them ten times more than what the average wage is in Mexico. I mean, come on, how? how I mean, it's like it's like farming with one hand behind your back automatically straight out of the gate. You know, we can't compete with that. Um, we're going to have to do better than that. The Monday before last, you can find it on a USDA website. The Monday before last, not this Monday, last Monday, 127 tractor and trailer loads of tomatoes came in the United States across the border from Nogales uh, at the port of entry in Nogales. I got two issues there. Number one, there's farmers that week. There were farmers in Florida around Homestead uh, destroying tomato crops mm-hmm. because they can't compete with the labor price. Okay, that's that's issue number one. Issue number two is a tractor and trailer has about 850 boxes of tomatoes on it. Are you telling me that every single one of those is inspected? I, I don't know. I Listen, I don't. There may, may or may not have been drugs on those trucks. I, I don't know. I'm just saying <laughs> it's an easy <laughs> way. Listen, okay, yeah, I got to stop you there because I'm laughing about this because you, you're talking about this. And literally my next door neighbor is in jail because he was organizing a, a tractor trailer of $3.4 million worth of cocaine. And who knew <laughs> coming in from Mexico? <laughs> I, I mean, do you think do you think that they're actually inspecting all 850 boxes of tomatoes on those trucks? No, they're not. There, there's right. no way to do that. There's no way to do that, and I don't expect them to. I, I don't expect our inspectors to be back <laughs> to to look at every <laughs> single box. I, right. I, I get it. I, I'm trying to be practical here, but let me tell you that there's a whole lot less cocaine and methamphetamine um, <laughs> and marijuana outside of my neighborhood. Produced, uh, yeah, but grown and produced in South Georgia than there are in my in, in Mexico. So you know, let's just <laughs> that's the well, obvious. Yeah, and so so, but now what do we do here? Because you, you hear Americans say, "Well, I can I can get the tomato cheaper from Mexico than I can in the United States." What beyond the price issue? I know in in talking to, to Secretary Purdue this morning that there are all sorts of regulations that suddenly this crisis is making the USDA and others realize, hey, maybe we don't need to continue complying with this regulation that was put in place in the nineteen early 1900s or late 1800s. I, I think I think that's right. I, 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 there, there are certain things. I mean, the consumers, ultimately, it's going to be in the consumer's hand. Um, and um, and I, I think that, you know, I think most consumers, when they hear our story, I think they're gonna. Uh, I think they're gonna buy in to what we're trying to do. I think we, you know, when we negotiate USMCA and other other trade agreements like that. Listen, I get it. I, I, I'm 99% of the American economy won in that in that trade deal. I get it. Everybody can't win all the time, but the southeastern produce growers took it on the chin, and we were screaming it all last year that this. We didn't know that COVID-19 was going to happen. Um, but it's just kind of a double dose. It's a double whammy. COVID-19 and USMCA is just busting us in our mouth. And, uh, and that's just a tough, again, it's just, just, it's a bad deal. It's a perfect storm for a lot of these guys to go out of business and, and we don't need that. Now, l- let me talk a little more specifically uh, about J Moore Farms. Uh, you guys have been around, gosh, for, for how long? Since the early 1900s? Yes, I'm the, I'm the fifth generation here on the farm. Um, my granddad's granddad was a sharecropper here in the in like nineteen twelve. 
Now, can I have I haven't actually been up to to Jay Moore. I probably need to go. My my wife is all about peaches, and man, we had to go buy strawberries in South Georgia. I, I by the way, I I fully fundamentally hate strawberries, and my wife loves them, and our whole house smells like strawberries because she's been making jam, and she's always looking for places for produce. Can people actually come to Jay Moore Farms individually, or is it just for commercial business? No, no, it's it, we have two retail stores, one just north of Gainesville, on Highway and another and another over at commerce at uh at banks crossing 441 and 85 so uh we we have a lot of people coming in and out and we we just appreciate we've been retail for for all of those years since 1912 and so how is how is retail business right now because i i know for example uh, we have had to go to some farmers markets to find stuff we just can't find at the grocery store right now because everybody's buying up stuff so we're able to get our hands on a lot of fresh stuff. We have a couple of brokers that we work with in Forest Park on the farmer's market, and, and we're able to get our hands on a lot of fresh, good-looking stuff. Um, prices are all over the place. Um, you know, early in COVID-19, weather was really rough. It was raining a lot, and, and that typically drives prices up. Now it's dried up here in the southeast, so, so quality is really good. Prices have come down a little bit. Trucking costs are up. So so prices are just there's really not a lot of consistencies to to a lot of the vegetables right now nor anything else really yeah but um <laughs> the quality of produce has been really good the supply has been pretty good we've been able to get our hands on it and and our markets are last weekend we had to uh you know we're it's it's decent i mean listen have we had better days absolutely but um we're um I just think that Georgians in general, I, I told a friend of mine this morning, I said, listen, I said, I believe about another week of this and, uh, and, and people's going to be, they, they, they're going to be raring to go. If the weather yeah. stays this pretty, I, I mean, look, you see the pictures of Home Depots and Lowe's and things like that. And, um, and even a lot of grocery stores, people are getting out. They, yeah. So, yeah, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I, I talked the other day on the radio about an article I saw here in Georgia that, you know, they track so many people by cell phone now and only about 15 to 20 percent of people have really curbed their behavior significantly, which I guess is enough to slow it down. But uh, it, it's definitely having the business impact uh, on people uh, and, and make it, I mean, between toilet paper and everything else, uh, trying to trying to get stuff in grocery stores is difficult. And now you've got the situation with you guys, for example, the restaurants and stuff aren't aren't open. And even the farm to table movement is kind of on hold right now. Right. I, I, it is. It is on hold. And, and just, you know, our business in particular, we there's a couple of aspects of it that we, you know, I'm sitting here right now. I'm looking at a bunch of picnic tables that are unfortunately roped off. <laughs> and then, you know. Some of our some of our non healthy foods, uh, pies and ice cream and that sort of stuff. We're not we're not doing that. We're not encouraging people to sit around and eat all that that stuff. But the vegetables, the essentials, we are selling and selling a good bit of. I, I think when this thing comes back, I think that we truly are blessed in the state of Georgia. I think that. Well, let me let me ask you one last question here. You, you, your phone's breaking up just a little bit, but I, I got one more for you, Drew, and and that is just bottom line. Uh, you view this almost as a national security issue, uh, and it, people need to be buying local and supporting local farmers in the country just just because we don't need to be dependent abroad. Correct? I think that's right. I think that uh, it's a thousand wonders that uh, that this virus didn't come in on our food system. Through our mm-hmm. through our food system, I listen. I know I know what uh, I know our food safety regulations in uh, in the United States, and they're pretty 
pretty, pretty stringent. You know, they, right. we, there's a there's a lot of hoops we have to jump through, and 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 it's important. I, I mean, people when they put something in their mouth, they need to understand where it came from, and and that the grower he, he did everything he could to keep them safe. Um, mm-hmm. Other countries, I'm not so sure. I'm not as I'm not as well read. Um, I know what I hear. You know, uh, right. And um, I, I don't I don't know their actual regulations, um, but um, you know the food safety scares that we have had, most of them have come from out of the country. They hadn't right. come from here, so I just think I think we got to be careful about that. Um, you know, it, it, you talk about a, a a bad situation. If our food supply got tainted, it, it would be it would be tough. And I and I would submit to you that that, that it is a matter of national security, our ability to feed ourselves. Um, yeah. That's that's a big part of being a a free a free country and free society. Well, I, yeah, I agree with you on that one. Well, listen, best of luck to you. At some point, I, I promise I am going to get up there and, and see where this pumpkin bread recipe comes from. Uh, right. Very much appreciate you taking time out of your day to to talk to me about it. Yes, sir. I appreciate you calling. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Drew Eccles, uh, Jaymore Farms uh, in Alto, uh, north of Gainesville. Uh, JaymoreFarms.com is the website, J-A-E-M-O-R-Farms.com. And seriously, they do have on their website, you can find the recipe there. Uh, now, now you guys know more about me than you ever wanted to know. My love of pumpkin and sweet potatoes. Uh, I could probably be orange. I eat enough of both of them. They're wonderful things. Uh, and it is a great farm. You can also go up to their market. Uh, they've got one in commerce north of Athens as well. Uh, and they're on Cornelia Highway in Alto. If you want to get up there, the farm is open until 6 p.m. Uh, every day. It's, it's Monday through, well, it's seven days a week. They open at 1 on Sunday, but otherwise 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, and uh, good produce up there. Wanted to talk to him in this this article in the Gainesville Times. John, go look it up. He makes a great point that a lot of farmers are not farm to your table. They're farm to restaurant and, and corporate table. They are completely disrupted right now. And we got to figure out a way to get them back online, but also long-term, stop being so dependent on people abroad and farmers abroad. We got great farmers in this country. We do need to sustain them. It is Eric Erickson here. And thanks to Sonny Purdue for stopping by this morning and for Drew Eccles stopping by. Seriously, go check them out. I, I want to play you a bit of audio. And then I want you to consider some of what we talked about yesterday. This is Brett Bear on Fox News talking about the origins of the Wuhan coronavirus. Sean, uh, good evening. These are, this is from multiple sources who've been briefed at the beginning part of the origins of China and the beginning of the virus. They've also seen documents open source and classified. Uh, we've asked to see those documents directly, uh, but they are saying that it is increasingly likely, it, it, there is increasing confidence that the uh, virus, COVID-19, started in that Wuhan lab, uh, not as a bioweapon. Let's just be clear about that. There is no one who's saying that this was how, a bioweapon. How, how would we know that? that it, I mean, well, we wouldn't, but they're not saying these sources are not saying that they're saying it occurred naturally because China was trying to show that they could be as good or better than the U.S. in handling viruses, discovering viruses. And this was a botched effort uh, to contain this. And it got out to the population. So there's increasing confidence that that's how it starts. Uh, they are 100 percent confident that China altered the data, the statistics 
statistics, uh, they did a lot of things to contain the information. Uh, meanwhile, they cut down, as you mentioned, travel from Wuhan internally, but left the international flights uh, going. And uh, th there obviously is, is how you have a, a spread like this. Now, what I think you're going to start to see is more and more officials being obviously asked about this. Secretary Pompeo was on Martha's show tonight, uh, asked specifically about it, and also these documents uh, that U.S. doctors went to that lab uh, a few years ago to inspect it, and through the embassy in Beijing, sent back warnings to the State Department, uh, saying that this lab was really not living up to standards, and there were warnings about how the lab was operating. Uh, I think you're going to see more and more officials say this. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Milley, asked about it, said the evidence was inconclusive, but it looked natural. Again, you can do natural, uh, but still have a botched handling of a virus in one of these labs. And that's what we're getting tonight, Sean. Yes. So a whole lot of people do owe Tom Cotton an apology because he was one of the very first people to point this out. If Tom Cotton was the first American politician to publicly start declaring this was going to become a problem, back in January he was doing it, and people on the left and the right mocked him. And yet, he was accurate, and he was the first person to say this probably came from that lab, and now it looks more and more like he was accurate, and people condemned him. People said, put words in his mouth, said he was accusing China of manufacturing a bioweapon, which he never said. And now it appears that it probably did come from this lab, which is one reason that we've got to have accountability for the press and their handling of China. The fixation on xenophobia, the pushback on people like Tom Cotton, uh, it, CNN yesterday ran a propaganda story from the People's Liberation Army. That's the Communist Army of China on how their deployment of a new aircraft carrier proves they have COVID-19 under control, unlike the United States. That aircraft carrier wound up catching on fire, by the way. The American media has fixated on Russians co-opting American politics and has totally ignored China. And I am increasingly convinced. You know, everyone has the conspiracy theory they believe. Every single person on the planet has something they believe. Beyond, beyond faith issues, everyone has something they believe they cannot prove, but they're just convinced it has to be true. And this is mine. I am convinced the Chinese have invaded and infiltrated American media. I, I'm convinced of it. And I've got a friend of mine who is a reporter who said, please, please stop saying this. And I've tried to tone it down from my aggressive dogmatism on the issue, but, but I'm still convinced the Chinese have a bunch of American reporters who have become very sympathetic to them even at the expense of the United States. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm convinced of it. When you look at the coverage of China, the sympathetic coverage, go back to the NBA situation and the protests. Look at how many American media entities would not cover the Hong Kong protests and what was happening with the NBA. They wouldn't do it. And ESPN even, uh, moving the cameras when someone would hold up a, a, a sign in support of Hong Kong, they would yank the cameras, change position. Now, I'm telling you, 
the Chinese were never going to hear about it from the press because they're in on it at this point. At least some of them are. That's a problem.